If you've got your Bibles, I hope that you have them. Do a little finger stretching right now because we're going to be flipping around quite a bit today. We're going to be looking at a bunch of different kinds of passages as we discuss the impact that Jesus' coming had on not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament scriptures that guide us and direct us. We're really looking forward uh, to spending Christmas Eve morning and evening with you. If you have the time and you'd like to join us for our services, we would love to have you come. What better, <coughs> but what better way to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ than to give him the gift of worship on his birthday? Uh, and if you've got your, your phones, uh, please do make sure to sil silence them during our services, but you might want to take it out and put a little reminder that our service is at 10 o'clock next week because that is a change. And, and inevitably, somebody's going to forget and someone's going to come here at 9. And, uh, you know, that's okay, but uh, we'd rather you uh, be able to be here on time and enjoy that extra time with your family. So come at 10 o'clock. We'd love to li lift up our voices to praise and worship the Lord God. And I believe our evening service is at 7, 7 o'clock tonight, uh, uh, a week from tonight. So... Uh, we hope that you will join us for those times of worship. Well, we've been focusing uh, on the Advent season and the birth of Jesus Christ the last few weeks. And the scripture has been showing us how the birth of, of God's Son brings unity, and different kinds of unity than you might even expect. We began looking at the unusual union between both joy and sadness during the Christmas season. And that song that we just sang, I think, is a it's a wonderful representation of how there is room for both things during the Advent season. The birth of Christ brings us joy because in Him is hope for salvation. In Him, our sin can be put to death. It can be defeated. But at the same time, we know that the gift of salvation came at a very serious cost to Jesus Christ. That He knew that taking on flesh was going to result in temptation. He was going to have to endure hardship. He was going to have to put up with disappointment and shame and abandonment by those whom he loved. And yet Jesus was willing to endure all of that for us. He was even willing to endure the horrible death of the cross. That can comfort us during a season that is normally expected to be a time of joy, but that often carries its own hardships and heartaches. And so we see through Christ that even at Christmas time, we can, we can have joy and sorrow together. Sadness and happiness can coexist in Christ. Last week, we considered how Jesus came to redeem not only the Jewish people, the ethnic Jew, but also the Gentile. While Jesus was born into the line of, of David and was clearly a fulfillment of Jewish prophecy, his sacrifice was not limited to only those who would call themselves a part of the, the Jewish race. Jesus offered his life for all different kinds of people. Though we come from radically different backgrounds, we experience a, a sweet unity together in the Holy Spirit because Jesus Christ is the one thing that we have in common that matters the most. He, he ties us together as one family uh, through his sacrifice and his resurrection. <coughs> so we've been talking about how <coughs> the birth of Jesus brings unity. And today we're going to examine how Jesus' birth represented a unifying con continuity between the Old Testament of Scripture and the New Testament of Scripture in God's Bible. The book that you have there, hopefully you've got one. If not, raise your hand and our guys uh, can bring one to your seat. But the book that you have here is a wonderful representation of God's revelation to man. These are inspired writings. Truths that our God knew we needed to have if we were going to understand Him rightly. Within the pages of this volume, there are 66 inspired books that work together to form God's revelation of Himself to mankind in one unified message. 
But not everyone identifies the important continuity that exists between the Old Testament and the New Testament scripture. There is a commonly held belief that the Bible is really two different stories, that the New Testament is a radical departure from the Old, or that the New Testament and the Old Testament are so fundamentally different that they in some ways even conflict with one another or at odds with themselves. <coughs> so I want to describe kind of why some people might think that way. Uh, for some who read the Word, the character and the person of this Creator God seems so different between the Old Testament Scripture and the New Testament Scripture. Old Testament books like Joshua and Numbers seem to portray a God of judgment, a God of war, a God of, of power and truth, versus a New Testament representation of God that some people feel characterizes forgiveness and love and mercy. In the Old Testament, God's anger towards sin leads him to, to enact a worldwide flood where nearly the entire human race perishes. In the New Testament, God takes on flesh and experiences death in a human body so that his elect will not have to experience judgment. Because people read and interpret God's way of, of dealing with man to contrast so starkly from the earlier to the later scriptures, it may be tough for them to reconcile how these two testaments can be telling one story. But the scripture itself gives us reason to believe that the God of the Old Testament is actually no different than the God of the New Testament. One of the, the very last scriptures that we have in the Old, which, which sets up a period of 400 years with no communication from God through the prophets, and a waiting period where we anticipate the coming of Messiah. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I think Israel needed to hear that because they were about to go through a dry period. They were about to, to probably experience some great wonder. Why is God not speaking to us? Why is he not revealing himself to us? Has he changed? Does he no longer desire to have mercy upon his chosen? Malachi says this God is not a God like a man would be. We, he does not have a, a, a change of heart. He is not a moody God or temperamental. God is not like us. He is immutable. One of the most important things that separates God from the creation is that he does not change. We progress through life, but God has no need to progress. That would imply he needs to get better than he is, but God is perfection, is he not? We learn and gain experience as human beings. We adapt to life as it comes our way. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not take each new wave of circumstances as they come and then adapt to those things. That which is perfect has no need to get better. So for God to change would have to be a corruption of His perfection. They say, well, when you're at the bottom, there's nowhere to go but up, right? But when you're at the top, there's nowhere to go but down. So if God is perfect in every way, shape, or form, for him to change at all in character and nature would be a downgrade for him. He'd be abandoning perfection. God cannot be less than what he is. He will not fail, and he cannot be defeated. And the New Testament also testifies of this truth. James 1.17 says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation 
or shadow due to change. This God that we worship today, the God that we lift up, will not tomorrow change his mind on us. He will not abandon his people. God never changes. The way that he chooses to interact with us may be different from one period of time to another. He may interact with you slightly differently than he interacts with me. He might allow you to go through different circumstances than I do, but that does not mean that he himself has changed in his essence or in his character or in his identity. He will always be the God that he is. And so this God, <coughs> who is perfect, is at the very same time the complete expression of truth and love. He doesn't have to change shape to take on patience and mercy and grace. He does not have to alter who he is in order to bring justice upon sinners. The Old Testament is not only, God is not only a mighty warrior and, and a just punisher, he is also the creator God who lovingly and caringly formed Adam from the dust of the earth and breathed his own breath into, into Adam so that Adam might live. We're talking about a, an intimate closeness with man, a, a sincere gentleness that God shows, even in the Old Testament scripture. And likewise, the New Testament, Jesus, who shows so much compassion and patience, also turns over the tables of those who have disrespected God's house, right? He is not just a God of meekness and mercy. He's a God who, while being meek and merciful, while being humble, is also courageous and mighty. And we will not back down in the face of opposition or sin. The Old Testament God endures generations of unfaithfulness, giving his people chance after chance after chance to repent and return to him. This is a loving God. And the God we read of in the New Testament promises to return and put an end to this world and to its inhabit and inhabitants in the final judgment. So we cannot see this God as, uh, as two different gods, a God in the Old Testament who is harsh and rigid and a God in the New Testament who is gentle and, and kind and loving. Rather, we have one God who expresses his fullness in, in various ways, both in the Old and the New Testament. He is both love and justice. But the character of God is, is only one of the things that leads some people to feel as though the Old Testament and the New Testament are telling essentially two different stories. The Old Testament seems to focus intently on laws and behavior, rules, while the New Testament appears to move away from living by rules and, and moves towards graceful forgiveness and freedom through faith. And so some people believe that that separates those two testaments, that God has changed his plan in some way. There seems to be a shift in focus whereby the covenant people of Israel dominate a large portion of the first testament of Scripture, Whereas in the second testament of scripture, we see an emphasis on the non-Jewish people of the world. The Gentiles are ushered in to receive God's grace. Does this mean that these two testaments are not cohesive together? They do at times seem radically different to the point that some have come to consider the Old Testament to represent an obsolete ideology that has been for all intents and purposes replaced and displaced by the New Testament. Is that how we should see it? Is the Old Testament valuable only for nostalgia's sake? As we look back on the way that God used to be with his people, but now he is better and different with us. In truth, the Old and the New Testaments are not the same, but they are not opposites either. They do not contradict one another in aim or purpose, just as God himself does not change or adapt. 
Neither does God need to alter his plan or shift his story to fit the will and whim of man's rebellious heart. In the Old Testament and New Testament, we have one story, and that is a story of eternal God redeeming sinful man. The birth of Jesus, his life of ministry, his teaching and praying, and his resurrection after giving his life on the, on the cross for us all coincide with this one story that is revealed to man progressively over the ages as we, and, and, we, and was brought into tremendous focus when God sent his son Jesus to dwell with man on earth. So when I say that the scripture is progressively revealed to us, that means that God over the ages shows us more and more of the picture of what he intends to do to redeem us, but that picture never changes. Just as when you begin to put a puzzle together, you, you might form the border and you might start to stick pieces in, in little patterns and as the clumps begin to form and you, you make more connections, you begin to see more of the big picture, but the picture doesn't change as you progress through that puzzle. It is always one picture that is just coming into more and more focus the farther you get along. The greatest <clears throat> difference, of course, from the Old Testament to the New is the presence and ministry of Jesus Christ, God's Son, here on earth. The grace that Jesus displays in his life, in his death, burial, and resurrection, is also the pivotal common denominator that ties the two testaments together. And so we're going to look today how the birth of Jesus Christ should help us see that the, the scriptures that God has given to us as one story, as one unified plan that God is unfolding through the generations. <clears throat> the Old Testament scripture itself gives us various clear indicators that God would be sending a special representative, an anointed one. That is what the word Christ means. It means one anointed or set aside for a special work by God. Anyone who feels that the New Testament was a, a replacement plan for the failure of the law in the Old Testament must explain the dozens of texts that reveal God's intentions to send a Holy One, anointed Christ, a Messiah. Genesis 3.15, the very first book of the Bible, reveals to us the first echo of Christ's coming. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's God talking to when he says these words? He's talking to Satan. He's talking to the serpent in the garden, our deep enemy. This serpent has interrupted the, the peace and the tranquility of Eden. He has tempted Adam and Eve to sin. And there are consequences to that. And so God, in rendering a curse to the serpent, makes it very clear that he has already planned a means by which Satan will be vanquished. And that, that plan that he plans to unfold through the, the history of time has to do with the seed of woman, Jesus Christ, one born of woman, bruising the head of the serpent while that serpent bruises his heel. So there's a conflict unfolding. And the scripture makes it clear early on that that is something we need to look forward to and anticipate. Later on, we see in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 13, prophet says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. This is God revealing the Davidic covenant to David 
through his servant Samuel. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So way back in, in 2 Samuel, we have this revelation that God intends to bring a king, which might seem a little strange to the people who heard this prophecy the first time. They already had a king, didn't they? They had David on the throne. He was a good king. He was a solid, strong king. Yet God knew how everything was going to unfold. He knew that the weaknesses of men would prove clearly that we have no business ruling ourselves. That as much as we would like to believe that we can be independent from him, that ultimately we prove time and time again our desperate need to depend on God. And so God tells us through this Davidic covenant that he's going to provide that perfect leader better than David, better than Solomon, better than Josiah and Hezekiah or any of the good kings. He would provide one who would reign perfectly and would reign forever. And that one would descend from the line of David, his servant. Psalms is replete with scriptures that speak of this coming Messiah. Psalm 132, Psalm 22, talk about his ministry, talk about his suffering and his willingness to die and how he would struggle in this life but would be victorious over death. And they point us forward to this special king who would not only fight for us but would give his very life for us. And then Zechariah 9.9 shares a very clear prophecy. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And for those of you familiar with the, the story of the cross, know that Jesus, of course, entered into Jerusalem in that last Passover week on the foal of a donkey, riding on the back of that animal as a fulfillment of this prophetic scripture. So when Jesus came, it was not as much of a surprise as many people took it to be. God had been pointing to this solution to sin way back in Scripture. Throughout His time of interacting with man in the Old Testament, He was constantly pointing forward to the plan that He would reveal piece by piece until we were able to see it. There are literally dozens of clear Messianic prophecies scattered throughout the Old Testament. And I think it's important for us to also consider how Jesus came onto the scene, how he, he was introduced to ministry. John the Baptist, a man whose birth is also a part of the Christmas story, as his mother Elizabeth was barren and was, long, uh, was very far along in age and should not have been able to bear a child. But after Mary is, is told that she will bear the Messiah, she's told that also her relative Elizabeth would be with child. And Elizabeth gives birth to this man, John the Baptist, who would come and proclaim that Jesus Christ would be the one who fulfilled all of these, these uh, prophecies that were laid out in the Old Testament Scripture. He would be the one to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, that says, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So even then, as, as the Jews were God's chosen people and were acting in covenant with the Lord God, He is pointing forward to a time when every valley 
will be brought up and every mountain made low where the whole of creation will experience God's redeeming power, not just the Jewish people, but everyone who would have faith in him. The, man who would <clears throat> the men who were inspired to write the Old Testament scripture gave plenty of indications that God planned to send this redeemer, even from the beginning of scripture. And likewise, those who wrote the New Testament scripture time and time again tied Jesus' work back to these prophecies, showing that he was indeed the perfection of those prophecies, the manifestation of their promises, quoting the prophets and indicating that Jesus was the one by whom, of whom they had spoken. Jesus himself also testifies that he is the subject of those Old Testament messianic scriptures. John chapter 5 Verse 39, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He's speaking to these Pharisees, these men who are, who, who are experts in the law, these scribes who are lawyers over the rules and regulations uh, of Israel. He says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them, in those rules, you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. Jesus saying, True eternal life is found in me. In those scriptures that you're, you're studying, that you're seeking and searching, you should see that they point to me as God's promise fulfilled. The relationship between the Old and New Testaments is one of strong continuity and progressive revelation. And so let's look at some specific ways that the birth of Jesus represented a continuity between what God had revealed to man in the Old Testament and what he was progressively revealing to us in the New Testament. First of all, the arrival of Jesus Christ set in motion not an abandonment of the law, but its fulfillment. Non-believers who are critical of the Bible are really fond of, of in debates and such, quoting Old Testament laws that seem obscure to us, that seem off the beaten path, and saying, well, if you really believe that the Bible is inerrant and that it's true, then, then how come you're wearing a garment that has two different kinds of fabric sewn together? Why aren't you following all the laws of the Old Testament? Why have you cut your beard? You know, why is your wife's face not covered? And they, they like to make a mockery of the Old Testament scripture saying that if we were consistent, we would follow those Old Testament commands of Leviticus. We would live them out just as the prophets of old tried to live them out. Now, it's, it's no secret that God does not demand that every law he delivered to the nation of Israel by Moses should still be enforced in the lives of today. There has been some transition. There has been some change. The majority of the dietary laws that were enacted to make Israel stand out as a unique and holy people among their, their peers, among the other cultures that populated the lands where they lived, have been largely lifted. And you can see in Acts chapter 10, where God tells Peter... And he can hardly believe it that he's allowed to eat now whatever he wants to eat. So those regulations are no longer upon us. There has been a shift. The Old Testament and the New Testament are not exactly the same. God progressively reveals truth to us as time soldiers on. Many of the laws that apply to the legal structure of Israel's culture are no longer necessary because the nation of Israel lost its independence. Much of what was given through Moses in Leviticus was formulated to structure a nation that would act as a theocracy, an independent people, a government system run by God. And for a time it operated that way, but 
Before long, they, they began to ignore their covenant promises. They began to disobey the Lord God that they should have loved, that they should have, they should have followed after. Instead, they began to rebel again. And God allowed their independence to be taken from them. Other nations, Gentile nations, were risen up and allowed to defeat His own chosen people to humble them, to show them that they cannot, they cannot survive without depending upon Him. Many of the, the detailed regulations have been superseded by the New Testament's emphasis on obedience, which is supposed to flow from a heart that should be, in many cases, stricter than the Old Testament laws were originally written as. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, You have heard it said, it has been written, that you shall not murder your brother. But I say to you that if you hate your brother in your heart, then you have committed murder against him. You have heard it said that you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that he who lusts after a woman in his mind, and his heart, is committing adultery with her. See, in the New Testament, God is, is calling us to, to not just focus on these laws, which sometimes can be followed without a right heart. And he's calling us to look deeper and to look into the very heart of obedience, that we would desire to be like Christ because he is the perfection of God's truth. So there have been some changes in the laws that God requires of his people. But make sure you understand this. This is a very, very important point, friends. The laws that are no, we are no longer bound by were not removed because they were wrong. Many people in the world today would say, well, if you look at the Old Testament scripture, God was doing it all wrong. He wasn't, he, he wasn't respectful to, to the, our modern sensibilities. We have learned better now. God has a better way of doing things, so he ejected those old laws and replaced them with better laws. But the laws that we no longer have to follow are no longer in play, not because they were wrong, nor were they removed because they didn't work. They are no longer strictly enforced because they have fulfilled their purpose. Galatians chapter 3. Verses 23 through 29 speak of this. I'm just going to read part of that section. The Apostle Paul is, is sharing with the, the people of Galatia how they are to understand the role that the law played before Christ came and the role that it plays in our lives now. Verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. He's talking specifically about faith in Jesus Christ because faith has been present ever since God has made man. Okay? So he says, ever since faith in Christ came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Very interesting things for him to say. The law was like a guardian to us, like a protector like a, a careful parent that looked out for us. In many ways, it is by the law that we are made aware of the, the depth of our need for a Savior. The law, in other places, is called a tutor, Romans chapter 3. It, it is an instructor that guards us from our sinfulness and tries to reveal to us how desperately we need to be saved from this sin that is a slave master to us. When the law is, is laid out, a law which is, is based on the character and the person of God himself, we see how impossible it is for us to keep the law in our own strength. We are a desperately dependent people, trying with all of our might to convince ourselves, to convince others, to convince God 
that we are independent from him, that we can do it all alone by ourselves when we simply cannot. And when we come to this law, when we come to God's regulations and rules and we see that, that this is what righteousness looks like, it becomes clear to us that we don't look like that. That looks very different than our hearts, that we are not able, nor do we even desire apart from Christ to do the things that the law contains. We are a desperately dependent people, but we don't want to admit that fact. <laughs> By attempting to keep the law, the Israelites were, were spared even more wrath than they would have had otherwise deserved if they had not been blessed with these laws and these restrictions that directed them away from their natural tendencies to rebel. So the law reveals our weakness and it also helps to prevent us from becoming more sinful than we could be. God is so graceful in keeping this world from being so much more wicked and dark than we have the potential of making it into. God's graceful hand is even on the unbeliever restricting us. He's even working through secular governments to keep us from being as wretched as we could be. And so the law guards us and it opens our eyes to the truth of our need for the Savior Jesus Christ. We must be careful, friends, not to make the mistake of believing that the law of Moses was the original way of being saved. But the grace of Jesus Christ is the new and improved way of being saved. I want us to look at Galatians 2. So if you've got your Bibles, open to Galatians 2 for a moment. The Apostle Paul does a wonderful job of helping, helping us understand the role that the Old Testament law played in the overall story of Scripture. And again, in Galatians, we see this, this great instruction. He says in verse 16 of Galatians 2, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means that I could work diligently. I could dedicate my heart, mind, and soul to doing the law, to fulfilling God's commandments, to being a righteous person, but that would not justify me. That would not make me right before God. I would not be any closer to being qualified to stand in His perfect presence if I did the law perfectly for the rest of my life because I'm intrinsically a sinner. Verse 16 goes on to say, So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Now listen to this last point. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The scripture just says it as plain as day. No one will be justified by the works of the law. So those Pharisees that came to Jesus with such pride believing that of all their countrymen, they were the most noble because they kept the letter of the law better than anyone. So much so that they added laws to God's law to show that they were so cautious about keeping the law, they would go above and beyond. Those men were not justified by their obedience. Nor was any individual who attempted to keep the law in the Old Testament economy. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. Plain and simple, we will not stand in heaven beside any other saved individual and look over and say, how'd you get here? Oh, I got here by grace. Oh, I, I lived a lot earlier than you. I got here by the works of the law. That's not going to be the case in heaven. If we're there in heaven together, it's going to be because of one reason, because of the mighty grace of Jesus Christ, which alone has the power to wash away our sin. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have this 
wonderful chapter where it looks back on all these individuals in the Old Testament who were a, a great example to us of faith, of living faithfully for the Lord, even in the, faith of, uh, the face of opposition. It's sometimes even called the Hall of Faith chapter. Now, when we look at the lives of these individuals, these, these you know, famous names that you've heard stories of since you were a little child, are these the people who followed the, well law, or the, the law well enough in order to earn their salvation? Is that why they're highlighted here in chapter 11 of Hebrews? No, friends. It is not the hall of works. It's the hall of faith. And this chapter goes on to say again and again that these Old Testament people, people who lived under the economy of the law, were saved not by the works that they did, but by faith in God. They could not yet name Christ because that had not been progressively revealed to them yet. But their faith in God is a thing that kept them from being punished by the wrath of the Lord. All the way back in, in, in Genesis, Hebrews 4 says that by faith, Abel offered up to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And in verse 8 of Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Verse 29, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. These individuals followed God and, and they were faithful to him. And that was the difference between them and anyone else in the world. There is only one man who has satisfied the law, friends. And that one man is Jesus Christ. Luke 24, verses 44 through 47. This will be on the screen for you. And then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be what? Fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day he should rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He has satisfied its demands. And so no longer is this law, this impending, looming structure of rules that we must tremble under, hoping that we can keep it. No, God has proven to us that he has kept it on our behalf. When we consider the fact that Jesus fulfilled the law, it's helpful to think of it like two sides of one coin. Jesus fulfilled the law, bless you. Jesus fulfilled the law by living righteously every moment of his life. He fulfilled the law by keeping it himself. He walked in purity and in truth. He did not give in to temptation. He not only refrained from doing evil, but he consistently engaged in doing what was good and holy and righteous. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? Isn't that interesting? We often think of ourselves as saved by His death, and that's a big part of it, but we're also saved by His life. Because Jesus lived how we could not live. And had He not, He could not have given Himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners like us. Romans 5, 19, For as by one man's obedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's, I'm sorry, by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Who is he talking about there? Adam. So by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, who is he talking about there? Jesus. The many will be made righteous. So God sent his son, and his son fulfilled the law actively by living according to it. <clears throat> and then the other side of the coin 
is that Jesus fulfilled the law by dying a sinner's death in our place. Because he suffered and his life was taken away, we don't have to endure that. We don't have to, to, to burn forever for our sin. We don't have to experience the, the rightful wrath of God. Jesus fulfilled the moral debt that we had accumulated. He satisfied the wrath of our holy God against the evil things that we have allowed ourselves to commit. And so by living righteously, he fulfilled the law. And by giving his righteous life on the cross, he fulfilled our debt to the law. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's speaking of the fact that Jesus was willing to stand in our place as our advocate and give his life so that we would not have to lose ours. So the arrival of, of Christ set into motion this, this amazing manifestation of Jesus Christ who has, has become the fulfillment of the law for us. Secondly, the arrival of Jesus Christ set into motion the provision of substitutionary atonement. This, this naturally flows from what we were just talking about a minute ago. God gave the law to man, and he gave man the law knowing full well that man would not be able to keep it. Some people like to think about the law of Moses as a test, as some great big gauntlet that man had to walk through and if they could survive it then they would be saved and then God sat back and watched as time unfolded to see if man would be able to keep the law or not but that that's far from the truth friends God gave the law to man knowing full well that man could not keep it that is why in Genesis we have a prophecy that God's going to send this one to crush Satan this one who's going to overcome sin and death Knowing beforehand that man could not keep the law, the law itself contained built-in measures for man's inevitable failure to keep the law. And we know that as the sacrificial system of atonement that was played out in, in the temple and first in the tabernacle. See, when sin was committed by these men and women who lived under the law, the wage was supposed to be death. When you offend the one who gives life, it makes sense that the life he gave you should be taken away, should be retracted. So in order to, to avoid the penalty of death, life had to be given in the place of the sinner. Now this was illustrated for us with the offering of lambs and oxen, etc., different animals that the Jews were to bring to the temple and give in place of themselves as, a, as an atonement for their sins, as, a, as a, basically a, a sign of their repentance to him. It's all lined out in the book of Leviticus. There is, however, a fundamental difference between human life and animal life. Though all of God's creation is valuable, though God loves all that he has made, only man was made in the image of God. So legally, an animal cannot give its life in place of our lives, and we, we expect that to be enough. It's not a sufficient sacrifice. No Israelite ever saved himself by his works, neither was the blood of lambs or bulls ever sufficient to wash away sins and mistakes. So we should not look back on the Old Testament and think that a physical lamb, an animal, the blood that was spilled there, could have in any way actually paid for the sins of those men, but rather those animals were a placeholder, they were a marker, they, they played a very important role in teaching the nation of Israel to look forward to the one true sacrifice that could redeem them. 
1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus was the fulfillment of that sacrificial system, which was a shadow or a type of the things to come. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 says, You were ransomed for the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus himself became our sacrifice, which made it all the more important for him to live that life of active fulfillment of the law. If he had sinned, he would owe God a debt himself, and he could not give his life for a substitute for ours. But because he lived perfectly, he was the perfect lamb, the spotless one, perfect in every way, shape, or form, and qualified to give himself on behalf of others. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, what a waste. Like, why was the system of sacrifice put in place if it didn't actually save people? We must not look at it as, as superfluous or as, as some, uh, some needless thing. The sacrificial system was important for a couple of different reasons. First of all, it showed in a vivid and important way how serious sin is, friends. You as Christians have heard me preach time and time again that the wages of sin is death. But it's so easy to just let that pass through our minds without really settling into our hearts. Because I sin every day. And I don't die every day, right? So is the wage of sin really death or is it inconvenience? Is it a less productive life? Many people think that the wages of sin is less happiness. But in reality, the wage, the consequence of sin is nothing less than death. By offending God, we deserve to have our life taken away. And when those Israelites would bring a lamb or they would bring an ox to the temple to be slaughtered, they literally watched the life move from that animal. They watched that blood being shed, and it was shocking to them. It made them see that their sin was so heavy that it affected not just circumstances, but it affected their very standing before God. So the first benefit of that system was to show the people how serious sin was. And secondly, it played a very important role in pointing their attention forward to Jesus and his better and more perfect sacrifice. It made them see their need for atonement so that when God would provide the perfect means by which they would be atoned for, they would understand, yes, I, under, I know that this is what God is doing for me now. That is my sin that's being crucified on the cross. That, is, that should be my blood being spilled. But because of Christ, Christ's love for me, he is spilling his own blood so that I don't have to be sacrificed. Hebrews 9 uh, does a good job of, of helping us to conceptualize this and understand the gravity of it in verses 24 through 28. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands. He's speaking of the holiest of holies that existed in the temple, the, the one where the veil was torn into when Jesus gave up his last breath. Christ has entered not into holy places made with human hands, which are copies of the truer things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood that is not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you see what he's pointing out here? 
He's saying that the, the Old Testament sacrifice system, you had to give sacrifices again and again and again. They were imperfect sacrifices. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, but we have a better sacrifice. We have that idea perfected in Jesus Christ. He never has to die again on the cross. Though you sin again, he does not have to give his life again. Once and for all, the act of giving himself was enough to cover us for eternity, to wash away all of our iniquity. And so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He is that perfect spotless lamb. And no animal could have ever done that for us. So do you begin to see the continuity that exists between that Old Testament scripture and the New Testament scripture? How they are not two radically different stories, but rather they are one story progressively revealed to us through time. That God did not just change his mind or rewrite the script by sending Jesus, but rather Jesus was his plan all along. The Old Testament was not a rough draft that needed to be edited or modified. It was the foundation upon which the New Testament truth is built so that God's one will to redeem man and to conquer sin could unfold over time in all creation. By the way, when did Jesus come and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin? He did it specifically during the week of the Passover when the atonement process was on the mind of the Jews more than any other time of year during that week, that holy week of celebration, where the, the high priest was to offer that, that offering, that sacrifice. So we need, we need to understand that this Old Testament concept of sacrifice feeds the people of Israel truth so that they might be able to understand what Jesus is going to do when he comes and is manifested on earth. Thirdly, I know we're coming up to the end of our time, the arrival of Christ set into motion the kingdom that was promised ruled by one from David's line. Those promises of the Old Testament are not forgotten. Those promises of the Old Testament are not null and void, but they are fulfilled in the acts and works of Christ in the New Testament. We see in Matthew chapter 2, and we talked about it briefly last week, about how Jesus came not just to be a prophet, not just to inspire people, but he came to take his throne. He came to rule as the prophesied king, the one that would replace the need for any other earthly king. Jesus came to, to be the, the Lord who reigns over all that is his. And that's why King Herod was so upset at the, the, the signs that he was coming, that he was being born because he had heard about this prophecy of the Jewish people and he was worried this, this man was going to try to rise up and displace him from his leadership role and from his authority. Though Israel had not had a king for over 500 years, a king of their own, Jesus arrived to fulfill a promise that God had made to David during his time on earth, that the anointed one would secure the line of David forever. What seemed to be broken, what seemed to be discontinued, was in fact being restored in Christ. Let's take our Bibles and open up to Hebrews chapter 7 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 7. Through the Old Testament scripture, God supplied for his people priests to minister to the people and to help point them to the Lord. Samuel was an example of a great priest in the Old Testament. Ezra was a priest that guided his people back to the Lord after they had strayed. Also throughout the Old Testament, God supplied kings to lead and to rule the people. 
Some good examples of kings were David or Josiah or Hezekiah. These kings did good by the people because they cared about the law and so much they were faithful to God. God was able to use them in doing some powerful things in the nation of Israel. Now, in the ministry of Jesus, God brought forth, he brought together both offices in one perfect man so that the perfect union of church and state might one day be realized. You know, we, we go to great lengths to make sure that church and state aren't mingled in America. People get all up in arms at the thought of state and church being mingled. But we're looking forward to an eternity where church and state are one, where the holy reign of Jesus Christ is perfect. And we no longer have to depend on, on the failures of imperfect men who try to lead and try to govern and try to legislate. But God himself will be our king and ruler as he is on the throne now. So let's read Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, that's an interesting word, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having to get neither beginning or of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. The writer of Hebrews is pointing back to an Old Testament scripture that speaks to our understanding of Jesus Christ and the role he plays in our life today. This Melchizedek priest is an interesting individual. He's not somebody that you hear a whole lot about, but in Genesis chapter 14, there's this, this, uh, this portion of scripture where Abram is blessed by this king, Melchizedek. This king comes forward, and he's unique in that he was not just a king governing over the ways of men, leading armies into battle, and he was not just a priest who would seek the Lord on behalf of the people or tell the people what the Lord would tell to him, but he was the perfect combination of both priest and king. So we're able to rejoice that Jesus Christ is following in the pattern of this king Melchizedek, that he is better than any king this world has ever seen because he is not only the one who keeps us secure and enforces what is right, but he is also the priest that ministers to us and brings us near to the creator God that otherwise our sin would have separated us from because we have offended him. And that's why in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, the apostle Paul can write to his friend Timothy and say to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This unified story that carries through the whole entire Bible, from the first words of Genesis to the very last words of Revelation, beautifully tells of a God who loved the world so dearly that even though sin threatened to spoil it, he intervened at a great cost to himself. His plan of redemption has not evolved over the generations though we are able to see it more now than we ever have before, and we rejoice in that fact. Rather, he has revealed more and more to it with each dispensation, with each, with each era, with each group of people to whom he has ministered to. And why is this important for us to think about during Christmas? I, I, I believe there's very practical uh, implications to our theology if we consider the way we view the Scripture and whether this, this whole book is, is useful for us today. First of all, I, I would point out the fact that if we see the law in the Old Testament as completely obsolete, as of no benefit to us, then we are very likely to drift into what is called antinomianism. We're very likely to become a kind of people 
that live in a way that is disgraceful to God, who does what is right in their own, own eyes rather than doing what God has called us to do. God's law is fulfilled in Christ, but it is still good, it is still beautiful, and it still gives us guidelines on how we should walk in ways that our God walks. The law was not a random set of laws, rather it was a group of, of rules that showed the nature and character of God to us. It showed us what He loved. It showed us what was important to Him and said, Here, live like God. Be holy as He is holy. <clears throat> I was recently talking to a friend in the faith about how some have, have, have recently given in to explaining away their sin by using the, the, the phrase, Oh, I'm, I'm grown. I don't have to worry about that anymore. The idea being that once you get to a certain level, if you understand that Jesus Christ is a God of grace, that He is good and holy, you don't need laws anymore. You basically have the freedom to live however you want to live. And those people were justifying their sinful actions, which were clearly a violation of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, by saying, oh, I'm, I'm mature, I'm beyond needing a law. I, I would rather say that a young man who grows up in his parents' household often doesn't think he needs that oppressive law that mom and dad gives to him. Often thinks that he knows better than mom and dad know and that if they would just leave him alone, he'd live his life fine. It would be okay. And that young man probably grows up pushing against those laws and resisting his mother and his father and he gets out into the real world and often that young man begins to learn the hard way that mom and dad weren't quite so crazy after all. He begins to see that if he would just listen to some of the things that they said, they'd know a thing or two. They got a little bit of experience under their belt that it would have been a blessing for him to have conceded to some of their regulations and boundaries. Then that individual will often begin to do the things that mom and dad used to tell him to do, but he does it now, not because he has to, because he's under their roof, not because he is required to if he's going to get fed every night, but he does it because he has seen and tasted that those laws are good. Just so does a Christian who does not need to see the law as the rubric by which he is saved can still see the law and say, thank you, Lord God, for this law. Thank you for giving me these, these ideas and these truths and these boundaries that now I desire to live by and I can live by by the grace that you have given to me through Jesus Christ. We don't want to just throw out the Old Testament baby with the bathwater because then we're losing so much of what God has shown us about himself in those earlier revelations. Secondly, if the law was enough, if we see the law as enough to save those people in the Old Testament, that was their economy, and now we've got grace now, so we're saved by Jesus, they're saved by rules and by, by uh, faithful obedience. If we believe that the law was enough, then Jesus' death on the cross was pointless, friends. Why would a God send His only begotten Son to suffer and die a gruesome death on the cross? if it was not necessary? Would he have not just given a better law or enforced it more rigidly? The law does not save us, friends. Only Christ can save us. And thirdly, if the New Testament is God's second try at redeeming man, if we see the First Testament as God's rough draft for salvation, that he gave the law, hoped that would be enough, then determined that it wasn't enough, determined that man could not or would not keep it, and so he changed gears and took an alternate course. If we believe that that's how the scripture plays out, then it would imply that God was unsuccessful in his first attempt. It would mean that the Old Testament was by and large a failure. 
the Old Testament scripture would surely be ignored then because it would be none other than proof of God's illegitimacy. May it never be so. May we never think in that way. God is a sovereign God who is all-powerful. When he wants something done, it will come to pass. And so we, we would damage our right view of this sovereign God if we look at the Old Testament scripture as this mess that didn't work out the way God wanted it to, and so he had to switch gears and try again. God's not batting 500, friends. God is always doing what needs to be done. And every individual who disregarded God's law in the Old Testament is proof to us that without Christ, we cannot prevail. We cannot keep the law. And every life that followed the best they could that law on faith is proof to us that we must trust this God by whose strength alone we can hope to even become a shadow of the truth in our own lives. The beauty of, of, of Scripture is this. There has never been a greater story told in all of the world than the story of God working redemption in the lives of his people. And that story is proclaimed boldly by the very first words of Scripture to the very last words of Scripture. And we recognize all of it as God breathed and useful for our education, for our training, for our correction, for all things God needs to do to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. Would you please bow with me as we close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for the amazing beauty of your word and for the intricate unity of how it is woven together. So much amen from the beginning to the end. We see authors who lived hundreds of years apart from each other have the same ideas, have the same thoughts, are on board, are not contradicting one another. And that can only happen because your mighty hand caused these words to be written in the pages of Scripture. Lord, how many ancient and uh, holy tomes have been written and yet over the years have become obsolete and have passed out of use, have, have become unpopular, and yet your word of God endures and it will endure forever. So Father, I pray that we would have a right vision of this word, that we would be grateful to live in an era when we have had more progressively revealed to us than other generations were able to experience and enjoy. And let us rejoice in that fact, Lord God. But let us never take for granted the earlier writings of Scripture. Let us have a great uh, appreciation for the fathers who came before and for those prophets who listened intently and waited for you to reveal more. Let us be grateful for the examples of, of goodness and faith and truth. And let us understand, Lord God, that this book is above all written for our good and for your glory. We praise you and ask that you would give us the strength to keep it today, to walk in its truth and its love. We lift this all up through Jesus Christ. Amen.